all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 329 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the inactive since 1967 episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that back on the 1st of July in 1967, um, with its last assignment being at the Los Angeles Air Defense Sector at George Air Force Base, California, the 329th. Fighter Inceptor Squadron was inactivated. And with that sad news, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from said sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. Tim, and you said fighter, in, you didn't say fighter contraceptive squadron, No, right? fighter okay. interceptor squadron. Fighter intercept, interceptor. That sounds like some uh, Tony Stark technology happening right there, or Tony Stark squadron of, of, of some sort. Although, the porn version would be the 23rd Contraceptive Division, <laughs> or, or whatever, or squadron. The, contra- the Contraceptive Squadron. That is the porno <laughs> Avengers movie series right there. Well, there's no doubt that the porn name would be interesting. I Actually, I, I think... For the the porn name of Avengers would be Avengers Back End or something like Rear End or something like that. That's probably, you know, instead of Endgame, it, you know, Rear End. I don't know. Anyway, so how the <laughs> hell are you, Tim? I'm fine. Last night, I, in the mail, not last night in the mail, but a couple days ago in the mail, because I do the Netflix DVD Blu-ray thing, uh, I finally sure. received... The first season of, well, the first disc of the latest season of Doctor Who featuring the lady doctor. And I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you, we don't really talk about, we haven't really talked about Doctor Who on the show for quite some time. It's true. Have you started watching the new Doctor Who? I got through most of the first season of Capaldi and then just kind of drifted away and haven't come back. I thought the first season of Capaldi was pretty good. And then it flutters away into obscurity and away from, like, what I like about Doctor Who. But then, like, his Mm -hmm. last season was pretty strong, I felt. So I was looking forward to seeing, I think her name is Jodie Whittaker, uh, seeing her take on the material. But since Stephen Moffat left as showrunner, they brought in somebody else. And the entire show is different. It looks different. It feels different the tone is different it's very much cinematic and i don't know if i like it or not but in this guy's defense in the new show i cannot think of the new showrunner's name because while i haven't watched been watching i still try to keep up on it as best as i can um the new showrunner is like literally a lifelong fan of Doctor Who. Uh, he was sure. actually in some kind of documentary or some kind of show where they actually showed him at like age 16 talking to the showrunners and asking questions and stuff in a, in like an audience Q and A kind of a deal. So, I mean, he knows his Doctor Who history. Um, oh, yeah. but the consensus that I'm seeing is that through no fault of her own, 
Uh, it's just that this current season has not gone very well. Um, so I would actually be very interested to hear your thoughts when you get done um, to see whether or not I, I really want to try and jump back in and catch up or not. Because if I, if I do, I'm going to finish Capaldi and then get into Whitaker. So. It, it reminds me of uh, the Eccleston season, kind of, where the Eccleston season was darker than David Tennant. And then with Matt Smith, it becomes more lighter and more kind of a bouncy experience. Jodie Whittaker, with the current season, yeah, it's very, they try to do it very cinematically. So it, uh, a, 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 like, I think their ultimate goal is so that the show will meet, will reach all mainstream, uh, mainstream audiences, you know, everywhere in the world. But mm-hmm. in doing so, you have to really create characters, especially your supporting cast has to be made up of characters that everyone can relate to. And I don't think they've, they've kept that very British. And I, I, I can't, I don't know if that's a huge misstep or not, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping very much like the Eccleston episodes that as the season goes on, the show will begin to prove itself and it'll be something quite, quite special. I am hoping because it's a little too mainstream cinematic and polished for my taste. Yeah. And I mean, I know that, uh, Tenet gets the majority of the love, um, of the, I guess, 2005 on iteration of um doctor who which is you know most people say like the current iteration but i mean that still was 15 years ago 14 15 years ago and um i i don't know i have a very special place in my heart for christopher eccleson i really like what he did with the character and he only signed on for the one thing he said i'll do one series I'll help you reboot it. We'll make it the best thing we can, but I'm not staying beyond that. And I think that's one of the reasons it was able to be what it was is because they didn't have to try and plan to keep Doctor Who the way Eccleston was playing it. And I think that was, it did. It made it be darker. It made for flights of fancy, but it gave it gave a tone and a setting that established everything else in the universe, but let Doctor Who be what he needed to be just for that. And then they created a springboard. And I think that is what it really was. I think that your anchor is Doctor Who, but just like you said, you've still got to have those compelling characters. And I think that they, um, I don't know. I just think that they have lacked it. And there was just something about Matt Smith. I, 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 got around to liking him well enough but and of course you're you're stepping into the shoes that david Tennant filled so it's not an enviable position to be in and so it just took so long for me to just kind of get into the groove of matt smith and a lot of that was because stephen moffat what you know was officially in charge and i just was never really a big fan of the way stephen moffat ran doctor who Agreed. And that's why I I'm exci- I was excited about the new showrunner, because Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who was just kind of running the gamut, like recycling the same, you know, trying to go, Doctor Who trying to get back home, trying to get back to his roots, but he can never, like, once they kind of, once they found the Time Lords, you know, once they found his his family and reestablished, you know, I forget the name of the planet, uh, Gallifrey, he found Gallifrey, it's like, okay, well, that was supposed to be the whole 
I thought that was supposed to be the whole, you know, mysteriousness of the character. Gallifrey is gone, but then they found it. I mean, it's not completely true what I'm saying. I'm trying to be a little bit more blasé for those of you who haven't really gotten to that point with uh, Capaldi. But, you know, it just started becoming a little too much of recycling the same stories just so you can get maybe a little bit more out of that said story each time you recycle it. I was excited for the new guy. And and that was the thing is that, you know, a, a lot of things with uh, the original stuff there, we know with, or I say original from, you know, 2005 or whatever, um, was with Russell T. Davies. And I, I really can, you know, and there were a lot of people who had complaints about the way, you know, Russell T. Davies did it. He was my favorite. Sure, uh, yeah, and he he was my favorite too. But like one of my best friends, Rob, uh, well, you you know Rob, yeah. Uh, he he was always the bigger fan of Stephen Moffat, and so but really together was the best when they were when I mean you can like whoever stories you want to like more, but it was the fact that neither one of them you know they kept that that their shifts kept the balance overall really high. When you went full RTD on his own, you got Torchwood, which was a really interesting concept, but then went way the hell off the rails. And then you get Stephen Moffat, who just thinks he's smarter than everybody else in the room. And, and it, and it didn't work either. But this has been an interesting discussion. Doctor Who. Who knew? <laughs> it's a nice warm up to get our, our voice cockles in motion as we, as we discuss the, uh, the end game of, the Avengers, or the end game for at least two characters, two of the Avengers. Wow, that early, huh? You better put you better put spoiler tag in the title. You're gonna piss a lot of people off. Yeah, or I could just call the episode Fat Thor. <laughs> then I guess without further ado, we should just get to it. What do you say? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. Let's do some news first because we're now we're gonna make you wait. It's the news. <laughs> then first up from me from news.avclub.com by way of randall colburn uh cory feldman made a documentary about sexual abuse he says could quote bring down potentially a pedophile ring end quote that's right folks former child star cory feldman has long contended that he and his one-time best friend the late cory ham were molested by hollywood insiders as children now rolling stone reports in a lengthy fascinating profile that feldman has made a documentary film and he and ham about he and ham's experiences one in which he apparently shines a light on quote, the two industry men who allegedly molested him at the age of 14, end quote, and quote, the A-lister and others who allegedly raped or molested his best friend, end quote. This project is separate from his previous efforts to produce his story, which fell apart in the midst of an Indiegogo campaign. Um, now, he does his normal thing here. They have a quote here from the Rolling Stone article. Uh, quote, right off the bat, I can name six names, one of them who is still very powerful today. It's a story that links uh, all the way up a studio and connects pedophilia to one of the major studios, end quote there. Um, it does say that uh, Feldman has named alleged abusers in the past, including former actor John Grissom. In 2017, the LAPD revealed it was investigating Feldman's claims of a, quote, Hollywood pedophile ring, end quote, something that sounds outlandish until you remember the allegations brought about brought against brian singer earlier this year um the article does go on to talk about a few other aspects of these 
issues, pedophilia, things of that nature. Um, it also touches a little bit on the Leaving Neverland documentary, uh, where, you know, Feldman still says that Michael Jackson was a good guy, but he can see the grooming aspects that they talk about in the documentary. And me personally, I still don't, I, I believe that documentary is full of crap. Um, but he also, you can also see kind of the havoc that gets wreaked because they do briefly mention Corey Hames' mom, who believes that Corey Feldman is insane and doesn't know what he's talking about. No one would have ever touched her poor little baby. Which documentary? The Finding Neverland documentary? The most Leaving Neverland. One? Yeah, or, the Leaving yeah. Neverland. Oh, yeah, Finding Neverland about, is... Oh, I'm Peter sorry. Pan. I said Finding Neverland. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> Let me... Yes, I'm sorry. Leaving Neverland, the documentary Leaving Neverland. Sorry. Totally misspoke. Sorry. Uh, the sad part is it's right here on my screen where it says Leaving Neverland, and it's a little link, and it's underlined in purple, but yeah. Anyway, thank you for jumping in on that there, Tim, uh, for, before I said the wrong thing repeatedly. Oh, I don't know if you actually said it the wrong way. I thought it was. I may have. I, After I just you said that. I'm like, realize that's what you're might... talking about. I, I I didn't hear the title of it. So, and then I called it Finding Neverland. No, well, we're good. We're all on the same page. Just leaving Neverland. That's the new documentary <laughs> about the two guys who are accusing meandering into Neverland, never coming out. <laughs> so, at any rate, at any rate, though. Um, so, yeah. But the thing about Corey Haim is that, see, like, his mom is coming out and saying things like, you know, Feldman's, you know, uh, and, and again, I'm totally paraphrasing. Please read the article. Um, but she's like, you know, Feldman's full of crap because no one would have ever touched my boy and, and, and things of that nature. But I, I disagree. I think that is precisely something that someone who had the issues that Corey Haim had that ultimately led to his destructive lifestyle, which ultimately killed him. Uh, that is precisely the thing that someone hides from their parents because they feel like it might uh, destroy their parents' lives or that they'll, that their parents won't love them the same or something like that. And then to grow up with that, um, and it does take guts like Feldman and Feldman has also had his own share of issues and stuff like that. Um, and at this point we're dealing with a guy who's the product of these issues and feels he has nothing left to lose. And of course that in and of itself becomes something that you can then say, Oh, well this Feldman guy's crazy. Don't listen to him. And then people won't. So this is the, this is the, demonstrating the pure unadulterated fallout from this kind of stuff and to Feldman's credit can also expose a light and shine a light on the mechanisms and machinery that make this horrible stuff plausible forget possible uh as i think the me too movement you know exposed back in 2017 so um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I just, I personally feel really bad for Feldman. I kind of hope that, uh, he does get to do this. He's having trouble finding distributors. He can't even get Lifetime to take this documentary and Lifetime's the one who did the R. Kelly documentary. So, um, I'm not sure how it's all going to turn out, but I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about this, Tim? Have you been following this at all? Uh, or what? Not really. Um, I mean, I, I hear, 
I've heard the rumblings of Corey Feldman and what he's been wanting to do and what he's been saying for, since uh, the Leaving Neverland documentary came out. I just really don't have anything to say about this, quite honestly, because I haven't seen Leaving Neverland, but I've heard pretty much... I've heard so much of the documentary, people talking about it at work, reading articles, that it kind of feels like I've got the gist of what the documentary covers. And I, you know, it's on, it's not my place to say anything. Um, I, and I don't really feel it's really my place to say anything about Corey Feldman because I don't know. I mean, I really think there's a good chance that when you're talking about sexual harassment, pedophilia, all that stuff, everybody has or could possibly have had a vastly different experience. Maybe Michael Jackson was smart enough to treat Corey Feldman differently, to treat Macaulay Culkin differently, other young children and family members, you know, differently than he did maybe the other kids that were a little bit easier to take advantage of, unfortunately. You just never know. And it's just a really sad, horrible, horrible situation for... Michael Jackson's family, for Corey Feldman, for everybody who is involved, um, especially, especially all those who are involved and all this stuff actually happened to them. So I, you know, I, I guess I just, yeah, just, I, I don't have much to say on the subject, unfortunately. Sorry. <laughs> and that is totally fair. That's totally fair. I, I was just curious if you had, um, if you'd been following it. I, I don't, obsessively follow it but when it does pop up on my radar i do like to check it out um mainly because at first it was kind of the watching the train wreck of Corey feldman and his music career and i freely admit that that is not the best place from which to start uh, following this story i mean seriously because that's that is exactly the kind of derision you know people laugh people make fun and let's face it it is it is a it is just simply a poor public spectacle um and feldman is frankly unwise for doing so he's i mean he might have creative energies he might even be a good songwriter at least lyricist wise but his music abilities his musical abilities are lacking and his performance is not good I'm trying to remember the name of his band because he's played at a lot of small venues pretty close to me and i've been tempted to go see him I just remember it's him and a bunch of like scantily clad women in in stringy leather things. Yeah, I, I know he refers to them as his angels or something like that. So, right, right. And, and again, yeah. So, so you kind of approach it from that. It, it's just uh, bizarre to say the least. But then again, so you start kind of digging into it and you see the things that he's trying to promote and push and do all these kinds of things. And and I don't know. It, it does truly become uh, fascinating. I don't necessarily say engrossing, but it is fascinating. So I, I, I'm interested. I follow it. I, and I, and I do hope that, uh, there's some good developments from it. I don't want people unnecessarily accused. I don't want it to turn into a witch hunt. Uh, but if these things are certainly true, I do hope that there is some, um, positive closure in that regard. Anyway, what's your first piece of news, sir? My first piece of news via Yahoo Entertainment. 
Disney accused of whitewashing its troubling past for omitting racially insensitive classics from streaming service. And this here is written by Susie Byrne, again from Yahoo Entertainment. And it says this, Disney Plus promises to be the hub for the iconic brand's past and present on-demand content, but not all oldies will be streaming. The 1946 film Song of the South will not be offered on the $7 per month service. Oh wait, side note, I thought it was $6.99. Oh, they've already started upcharging us to 7 bucks. I digress. Uh, so, Song of the South from 1946 will not be offered on the $7 per month service, and the Jim Crow scene in 1941's Dumbo will be edited out. Boardwalk Times reported, and The Hollywood Reporter confirms. That's because both have been deemed racist. Song of the South for its portrayal of African Americans working on a plantation and serving their white masters, and the doo-wop singing crows, one of which was actually named Jim Crow, a reference to the racist laws that allowed segregation. Disney's stance on both of these has been clear. While Song of the South inspired the Disneyland ride Splash Mountain, it was taken out of the circulation and never released on home video in the U.S. Disney CEO Bob Iger addressed the decision back in 2011, saying, quote, It was made in a different time, dot dot dot. I just felt that there are elements to the film, while it was a relatively good film, that wouldn't necessarily sit right or feel right to a number of people today, end quote. And while the company could profit from the film's release, he added, quote, Sometimes you make sacrifices on the financial side to do what you believe is right, end quote. In Dumbo's recent live-action remake with Tim Burton at the helm, the crow scene was completely deleted, explaining it was the, quote, animated equivalent of performing in blackface, end quote. The reaction to this decision has been controversial for a litany of reasons. First, of course, some people don't think it's fair that Disney is throwing away history, despite the fact that it's clearly offensive. They have an example of a tweet here. Somebody was replying to Holly the Hollywood Reporter post, Song of the South, Dumbo's Jim Crow scene will not be on Disney+. Plus." THR article that I guess came out on April 22nd. A guy on Twitter named Tom Wagner, at TWagner64, responded with, This country is in deep trouble. Throw away all our history while you're at it. Undecided. Emoji face was added at the end of it, I guess. It was yeah, whatever. I don't know what these stupid emojis are called. Somebody else commented with, quote, Very interesting in these PC times that we live in. That was from at Hammersteam. And then we have at Robbie vs. You. Is it bad that I see nothing wrong with Song of the South? And I never seen the crow scene in Dumbo. Yes, that was from Twitter user at Robbie vs. You with Sonic the Hedgehog as its profile picture. And the article goes on from there with various tweets and replies to those tweets. And if you want to read them, just go to www.yahoo.com entertainment in the article, Disney accused of whitewashing its troubling past for omitting racially insensitive classics from streaming service, written by Susie Byrne. Matt, we've discussed this at length here a few months ago, or actually a couple weeks ago when we covered Dumbo. What do you think? Do you think this is whitewashing, or do you think it's important that Disney, maybe not owning up to their past, but Disney owning up to their past, but maybe including like a documentary or something 
tacked onto these films to say, hey, look, this is not right, but let's go back and look at the history, go back and look at the time that this film was being created in, and how those times are completely different from now. Sure. I, you know, I, I would even be fine, I think, if they wanted to provide both options to say, hey, look, you know, there's they run a little disclaimer at the front of Dumbo. Um, you know, like they could have Dumbo, and, and, you know, and then Dumbo unedited or Dumbo original or something like that, you know, original cut something or say like Dumbo 2019 animated and then Dumbo 1943 original or 1941 original. Right. So that people can clearly see the difference. Uh, and then if you click on the 1941 original, it says, like you said, a little disclaimer, Hey, this is what it is. This is the time it was made in da, 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 da. Which incidentally is exactly what Warner Brothers did. Warner Brothers released all of their Merry Melodies, all of their, uh, Looney Tunes and stuff on DVD about 15, 20 years ago. And, uh, I want to say at least 10 to 12 years ago, they were starting to release them again on Blu-ray and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they actually have uh, little disclaimers, that, not disclaimers, but little headliners or whatever that run in front that say, what you're about to witness is a product of the time and era that it was produced in. These these shorts no longer reflect the the views or values of Warner Brothers and its affiliates, blah, blah, blah. Um, but to not share them would be to deny history, which is also a bigger injustice. Oh, it actually says that in the in the disclaimer? Yeah. Really? That it would be an injustice to deny history? I am paraphrasing, oh, okay. but basically, uh, I don't know if it uses the exact words denying history. Is it? But yeah, I actually saw it because my father-in-law had the sets. He is a huge, he was a huge... Uh, Looney Tunes fan. And so, uh, and, and that's all they have to do. That's all Disney would have to do. Uh, because then it says, look, you know, we don't agree with this anymore. Um, and here is a version that if you would prefer to not see it, then here. And then also to leave it for, to say, but here's the real thing too. And let people, and just let people decide what they want to watch. I would even be okay with that. But to take the choice away completely, it really is whitewashing. And it's the worst kind of whitewashing because it's trying to make, in, in literal terms, it's trying to make white people look better. <laughs> it's like, guys, everybody knows what you did. So don't bother trying to hide it. Don't bother trying to take it away and pretend like it never existed because all you do is sweep it under the rug and provide fodder for those you do not want using it to do exactly that. Well, more importantly, look, or maybe I don't know, maybe not more importantly, but more startling is that it's trying to make history look better. Yeah. It's kind of like they're trying to erase Really, even most of the 20th century. They're, socially speaking, they're trying to erase the uh, 18th, well, not the 18th so much, but the, definitely the 19th and the 20th centuries. And 
I, I get the idea of we so want to distance ourselves from that going forward. I, I mean, sure. You, but don't, but don't hide it because hiding it makes it look, look, makes it look worse than it actually is. And it's bad enough that it already existed. But you also take away the ability for people to put the proper context to it and to decide for themselves what to do with it. Because just like when we discussed initially with Dumbo uh, a few weeks ago, we noted that there is some controversy regarding the Jim Crow scene, but it's not just one-sided. The controversy in and of itself isn't that it is inherently racist. It's whether or not it is inherently racist. Are there racist elements? Most, most certainly, depending on how you want to look at it. Are there redeeming elements? Most certainly, depending on how you want to look at it. And when you have defenders across the board, including the likes of Whoopi Goldberg, um, saying, leave it in, then I think that means there's room for discussion. Um, and the fact that Disney doesn't want you to have it absolutely speaks more to Disney. And if nothing else, makes my copy of Dumbo worth more than your streaming service. So there's that too. Oh yeah, no kidding. I mean, especially with all the questionable added footage that animators put in over the years, like the even the penis on the cover of The Little Mermaid. And my clamshell copy actually had two inserts. Yeah, that, that might be worth something. So mine's mine's worth twice as much as the average clamshell copy. Well... Who would have known yeah, clamshells yeah. would have been so... Penis-worthy? Fascinating and so detrimental to our pop culture. Right, but a clamshell being penis-worthy? Double on top? Never mind. All right, so uh, <laughs> let me move into my second piece of news. And let me just really quickly recap uh, the previous... I forgot to mention the article again for those who might have known. News.avclub.com by way of Randall Colburn. Corey Feldman made a documentary about sexual abuse, he says, could, quote, bring down potentially a pedophile ring, unquote, uh, because I forgot to say it twice before. Uh, my final article is uh, from techdirt.com by way of Mike Masnick. Emilio Estevez uses some public domain footage in film, so Universal Studios forces original public domain footage offline. <sighs> That's right. This really happened, folks. Um, here's how it breaks down. Back in 2006, librarian Michael Sowers posted a public domain film, a U.S. government production called Your Life Work, The Librarian, to YouTube. Now, uh, Your Life Work, uh, according to the article here, Your Life Work was a series of educational shorts that, according to the Internet Archive, were, quote, meant to inspire young post-depression workers into specific new careers, end quote. One of those careers? Librarian. Sowers' upload of the video has lived happily on YouTube for over 12 years until a few days ago, if you visited it, you saw the video unavailable image instead. Now, uh, the, and when I say a few days ago, because I'm reading from the article, this article uh, was posted on Tuesday, April 23rd. Now, uh, he says, uh, and I quote, Mis uh, Mr. Masnick says, and I quote, now that's obviously bullshit that the video is not available on copyright grounds because the video is in the public domain. 
So, what happened? Well, the takedown notice that Sowers received reveals what almost certainly happened, which is, again, that Universal claimed a copyright strike against Sowers' channel for displaying copyrighted material. The copyrighted material in question was the public domain footage that Emilio Estevez used in his movie that he is making now. So, to to put this all back into a timeline, all right, the Sowers guy finds a government a government film that is in the public domain, posts it on YouTube. Emilio Estevez wants to make a movie. Apparently, this is a passion project. Uh, it's called The Public, uh, which is a new movie written, directed, and starring Emilio Estevez, which uh, is about a group of homeless library patrons who refuse to leave a public library in Ohio during a bitter cold winter. Uh, was a labor of love for Estevez, who worked on the film for the better part of a decade. And apparently, back in January, Universal Pictures acquired the rights to the film. So... Twelve years ago, the Sowers guy gets the video or get, gets the film, uploads it to YouTube. It's public domain. It cannot be copyrighted. Emilio Estevez makes this movie and in doing so uses footage of the public domain film in his movie. Universal, in an effort to, you know, copyright claim everything, puts the whole movie through the content ID system, which is what YouTube uses to flag uh, copyrighted content, and does not excise the footage of the public domain film. So now, when content ID, their little algorithm that YouTube uses, or Google uses across all Google sites, um, it flags it and pulls it and starts issuing copyright strikes. And now this poor Sars guy can't want, can't display his movie. The movie is still available on the internet archive. You can, you can find it there. Um, but the problem here isn't that there was clearly a goof, a simple goof, a technological goof that can be easily remedied. The problem is, is this guy, Sowers, has been given a copyright strike that he can't even legally fight on his own. Because of the way the content ID system works and the way that Google works through YouTube to fight copyright infringement. Because their process is content ID, which only certain people can register to be a part of content ID. So basically only the big movie studios, only the big music groups, and only the big media uh, groups are allowed to be a part of content ID. Um, they get to say, here's what we say is ours. Doesn't matter if it is theirs or not. They get to say, here's what's ours. They run it into this algorithm. The algorithm then starts looking through every single video that gets uploaded to YouTube. And YouTube then, and, and as soon as content ID sees it, flags the person and takes and issues them a copyright strike. If they get three copyright strikes, they lose their channel entirely. Now this person says, hang on, this is not their stuff. This is not, this is, this does not belong to whoever is flagging me. So they fight it. They challenge this copyright strike. And here's how the challenge works. I'm Joe Schmo and I've just been issued a copyright strike because 
you know, megalomania, megalomaniacal corporation used content ID. So I go to strike against uh, megalomaniacal corporation and I say, hey, you are not, uh, you, you do not have control of this content. So then instead of YouTube or Google or anybody going, oh, wait, hang on. Why are, why are they asking? No, no, no. They then just go, excuse me, uh, Mr. Corporation, are you sure this is yours? And just leave it at that. If the mega corporation says, oh, yeah, no, that's mine. You now have to sue them and go through the court process to prove that it's yours. In the meantime, which can be done without a whole lot of lawyers, but it takes about three to four months and in that time, you have the strike officially stays on your channel. And you, and, and now according to YouTube, Mega Corporation own, not only owns your content or the content, but all your revenue forever. Yeah, that sucks. This is a completely broken system. And I am just so irritated that now not only is it going, not only is it affecting the ability for people to truly create content, it's affecting the literal public domain at this point. It is affecting the ability of everyone to be able to utilize, pardon me, utilize the public domain for its intended purpose. And I, I'm just pissed. It just pisses me off because this would be so simple to fix, but YouTube won't. And Google won't. And what's even worse is that there's nothing that can compete with YouTube. I don't know how something can compete with YouTube. I wish there was something that could. Because I would love to try it out and check it out and support it. Because until something can come along to compete with YouTube, they're not, they have no incentive to fix it. Pornhub? Pornhub was actually the place to go. You you sent you you had that article, didn't you? About last year or something about Pornhub being the place to go for pirated movies. Yeah, in fact, uh, currently I was reading something that a lot of the uh, uh, spoilers for Avengers Endgame, since Endgame I believe was released in China early, like before the U.S., a lot of the movie you could find, or actually the entire movie you could find in Chinese. I believe it was Chinese on Pornhub. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Pornhub, I guess, might be able to do so. I, I, I think it'd be interesting if Pornhub could create, I don't know, Group Hub, U Hub, I, I don't know, uh, Media Hub or something, so that it's the same server system and the same, con you know, uh, comment system and stuff. It's just not porn videos. Hey, man, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to give it a shot. <laughs> Did you know about this problem? What, what, uh, what, what I, I did answer? not know. Uh, I have heard rumblings about issues revolving around public domain material, uh, especially music, that I think studios are trying to fight to reclaim somehow. And that's been causing a lot of issues with laws <laughs> that have been firmly in place for years. But yeah, no, I didn't hear about this particular one regarding Universal and Emilio Estevez and this guy. And to be fair, it's not Emilio Estevez himself. It, it's Universal. Emilio Estevez's film was just picked up for distribution by Universal. 
Right. I mean, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want poor Emilio Estevez to get caught in the crossfire here. I just... Emilio! Yes. Check it out for yourself here. TechDirt.com by way of Mike Masnick. Emilio Estevez uses some public domain footage in film, so Universal Studios forces original public domain footage offline. And that's my news. I'm not going to go into it because of the current time, but uh, my last piece of news was going to be about these articles that started popping up on Wednesday or Thursday of this past week, when to take a bathroom pee break during Avengers Endgame. The article I was going to pull from was via CNET.com, when to take a bathroom pee break during Avengers Endgame, written by Caitlin Petrakovitz and Rebecca Fleener. And this was the first article that I read uh, or chose to read regarding this issue. And the reason why I was bringing this up is because it annoys the hell out of me. There were so many articles being posted online uh, talking about when to, or laying out when it was safe for you to go to the bathroom. And they give you all these different examples of when to do it, when not to do it. And I just couldn't help wondering, did we have like a plan put in motion for Lord of the Rings to return to the king? or any of the Lord of the Rings movies, or any of the Harry Potter movies, I don't remember like having to take a bathroom pee break being such a, a life-or-death situation, like something that people had a plan for. Whenever I first started going to movie theaters, I knew that if I wanted to sit through the entire film, if I was wanting to see the movie, I would go pee before the movie. Or if I felt like I had to go pee at the start of the movie, I would run out real quick and just go pee, you know, and not have to think about when it's a good time to go pee or not. I would think maybe that would take you out of the experience. But Matt, do you have any comments, questions, concerns? I know you commented on my twitter post over this <laughs> yeah i'm just and i'm just going to reiterate that here for those who did not see it or don't recall it um i, I just remember the wise words of my mom who said go to the bathroom before we go and if you don't have to go try anyway and that's my news <laughs> <laughs> all right well next week we're gonna uh actually be starting a cool bonus series for you guys uh so we won't so so the bonus segment in and of itself will be our bonus series overall we're gonna be covering the uh life and times and career of ray harryhausen we've got a selection of films that kind of cover his entire career that we're going to be going over uh over the next uh four weeks and that will start next week so uh, that's going to be the bonus segment for next week. And until then, I guess now we have time for news. I'm sorry, news. Movies, right? Movie it up! Here we go, folks. It's the movie we we And this week's movies are Shazam and Avengers Endgame. Now, I'm sure we're going to be like every other jerk-ass media outlet, and if we don't have anything, or if we have Endgame content, we're going to make people wait till the end to talk about it, so we'll do Shazam first, is that right? Yeah, why not? Okay, here we go, folks. Shazam. You've run from foster homes in six counties. I can take care of myself. When you're 18, give these people a chance. Because that's what they're giving you. 
This is Billy Batson. Make sure you make him feel at home. They seem nice, but don't buy it. It gets real Game of Thrones around here. Dude, just messing around. You look at me and you're like, why so dark? You're a disabled foster kid. You've got it all. If you could have one superpower, what would you pick? Everybody chooses flight. You know why? So they can fly away from this conversation. No, because heroes fly. What, you need your fake family to stand up for you? Hey. Man, sorry about that. Go, go, go! Famine! Get out the way! Billy Bats. I choose you as champion. Say my name so my powers may flow through you. But I don't know your name, sir. Shazam. Wait, for real? Say okay! Shazam? Ah, ah. This means Billy! What is happening? You're the only person I know that knows anything about this Cape Crusader stuff. That's crazy, right? What are your superpowers? Superpowers, dude? I don't even know how to pee in this thing. AM to the BM, BM to the AM. You have super strength! BM, you just Can you fly? If I quit this season, Whoa. I still be you okay? Why are you talking? Oh. Sit down. You know, I don't think that's gonna buff out. Your phone's charged. Your phone's charged. What the hell? You're like a bad guy, right? Gentlemen! You have bullet immunity! I'm bulletproof. <laughs> You're dead. Sorry about your window, but you're welcome for not getting robbed. Oh, hey, what's up? I'm a superhero. All right, we got a 2019 American superhero films based on the DC Comics character of the same name. Uh, this one here is directed by David F. Sandberg and stars Zachary uh, Levy, Mark Strong, Asher Angel, Jack Dylan Grazer, and Jimon Honsu. Um, I, I, yes, and I, uh, we got, we got this kid back in the 70s he's arguing with his parents or i'm sorry his dad and his brother and he gets kind of teleported to the what, what what is called the rock of eternity basically and he's offered a chance to become shazam unfortunately he is not as pure of heart as would have been hoped and really kind of through no fault of his own uh, a car accident occurs uh, yeah, I, I'm going to go out and say it wasn't really his fault. Um, a car accident occurs and everybody blames him for it. When we fast forward to the present, now we've got uh, Billy Batson running around trying to find his mom, gets stuck in another foster home, um, and he too decides to uh, do something that causes him to be tested. And it literally is kind of a... This particular scene, which they showed in the trailer, is almost a shot-for-shot remake of the animated stuff you can, the DC animated stuff you can find uh, on Netflix and/or the, the DC streaming service. Um, and so, I, yeah, and so they kind of pulled from that, and then of course, you know, Billy becomes Shazam. So this teenage kid becomes grown-up kid, and and a grown-up superhero guy, and the grown-up superhero guy is Zachary Levy. Um, shenanigans ensue, Shazam has to learn how to be Shazam. Or I guess Billy has to learn how to be Shazam. This movie 
is shockingly fun. And I don't mean that because of the lightning bolt <laughs> stuff. Um, this is definitely a movie that, despite having flaws, which it does in terms, a little bit in terms of pacing, in terms, in terms of its ability to, um, take itself seriously and being able to, through pacing, shift that uh, ability well, much like shifting the kid to the grown-up, we need to be able to shift from fun to serious uh, and back again. There are, there are pacing issues that abound in the movie as a result of that. Um, I think, however, the concept is fun, and the special effects uh, for the budget on this thing... I was really impressed. I did not think that, I mean, they, they, they again have flaws, but when you consider the budget that went into it, um, I was okay with them. I think they made them work. I also like that they put this film as a, I guess, as, as it pays a little bit of, of an homage to the DCEU, um, in a Deadpool kind of a way. But not so much that it hardcore ties it in. It lets it, it does kind of let it be a way to bridge what the DCEU was into what the DCEU can hopefully become. Especially, um, after coming off of Aquaman too, because we had Aquaman and now we have Shazam. And it seems that the people at Warner Brothers, people at DC have finally said, Oh my God, let's just try and have some fun with this. Um, and this seems to be working and I hope that they continue with this trend aside from the pacing, aside from some of the special effects issues, which again, I find forgivable. I think this movie is really fun and I was surprised at how much fun that I had with it and I did enjoy it. I found that I was laughing a lot. Um, I would love to take my kids to this movie. Unfortunately, my children are complete wusses when it comes to anything with a scary image or even a slight <laughs> horror element. So they don't get to watch Shazam. Uh, <laughs> um, again, uh, hopefully when they get a little bit older, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure my oldest daughter could handle it. Um, but I think I'm still going to wait until it comes out on Blu-ray for her even as well. Um, this one, uh, this one is a definite recommend for me. I give it a four out of five. And I, I really truly believe that after Aquaman, especially with something small, uh, and a lesser known superhero on the grander scale, they're moving in the right direction and I hope they keep it up. So four out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I thought it was a clever script consistently lighthearted and silly, but there's still plenty of bite that warrants the PG-13 rating. My main complaint is that the movie doesn't feel natural. The foster kids and parents don't feel like a real family to me. They are obviously acting. The father, I thought, was miscast. He was too friendly looking, and the kids were very underdeveloped. We get a taste of each of their personalities, but not enough to build any relationships off of. No matter how many times the script mentions the importance of family, relationships must still be developed and defined. Shazam might be colorful with its looks and its characters, but there is a lot of darkness and death 
that none of the trailers I felt represented very much like the lighthearted adventure flicks from the 1980s, kind of like Goonies, you know, where good and bad people die, kids curse, and there are violent consequences. It's just overall a fun movie. It's not a great movie. There's a lot of issues with the film, a lot of inconsistencies, but overall, I mean, it's, it's charming. It definitely won me over. I give it a four out of five. We've got a four across the board. And without further ado, it's time, folks. Ten long years. All about that Avengers Endgame. God, seems like a thousand years ago. I fought my way out of that cave. Became Iron Man. Realized I loved you. I know I said no more surprises, but... I was really hoping to pull off one last one. The world has changed. None of us can go back. All we can do is our best. And sometimes the best that we can do is to start over. We got a 2019 American superhero film. This one, of course, based upon the Marvel uh, comic superhero team, The Avengers. Uh, again, directed by the Russo brothers, Ant- Anthony and Joe, starring, well, good lord, everybody. Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, Don Cheadle, Paul Rudd, Brie Larson, Karen Gillian, Denied Guria, uh, Bradley Cooper, and Josh Brolin. Now, this movie picks up three weeks after the Thanos snap. Yes, it's been one year for us, but much like <laughs> much like the Quantum Realm time, it's been three weeks for them. Um, everybody's trying to uh, take notice of the collateral damage of the carnage, what they're trying to do, find Thanos at all costs, and it does work out in such a manner that they are able to find him. They find him. Uh, oh, and if we haven't said this enough yet, Spoilers. Spoilers all over the goddamn place. Um, the, the, they find Thanos and they kill him. Why? Well, because Thanos did tell Thor, next time go for the head. Or not next time. You should have gone for the head. Um, they kill Thanos because there's no reason to keep him alive. I mean, there really is no reason to keep him alive. He destroyed the Infinity Stones. He used the stones to destroy the stones. And um that's it. That's that's where they are. Five years goes by and the world has moved on. 
as best as it can, which when you think about how much overcrowding there is uh, uh, in certain parts of the world and everything, it's interesting to show realistically. I, I mean, I mean, I know it's all special effects. It's all CGI, but they really did a good job of showing how with half the people gone, there's just no way to just pick up and make it look like it was before. Entire stadiums are still falling apart. Um, there's car and junk depots all over the place. Um, nature is starting to re, you know, is starting to reclaim parts of cities and suburbs and everything. Whales are in the Hudson. Yeah. It is interesting that they are able to show that. I really do think that the producers, uh, the writers, and I think to a certain extent, the special effects, the, vis- the visual effects team, did their homework. They went to Detroit. They went to Japan. Um, I, I'm speculating, but I believe that they, you know, they went to Detroit. They went to Japan. There are places around the world that have been abandoned for many different reasons. And you can see the effects of nature reclaiming things over time. And they really did a fantastic job of demonstrating that. And they did it in different areas as well. So you're getting this building you're getting this feel of what it would be like if half the world was gone um and that's where ant-man comes back in of course your traditional comic book trope something stupid happens i mean the fucking rat on the control board really um but uh you know because no one in the avengers world would have thought of hank pym and the pym particle and everything and like knowing that he had been out there and everything nobody would have left that van there yeah yeah they they would have i mean of course they would just let it get put into storage oh my god whatever okay so ant-man comes back that <laughs> um and for him it's only been five hours it's been five years for everybody else but for him it's been five hours so he sees his daughter all grown up shows up and then they develop the time machine right it's that they really go about trying to use at least pseudo science uh in the idea of um incorporating it into the idea of you can't make a time machine like the movies say you can um they give you one little portion of you know twist your noodle burn your brain time theory when i believe it's banner it's either uh it's either banner or stark who says if you change if you go back and like kill hitler right or it wasn't kill Hitler. if you go back and kill thanos as a baby then that becomes the new future. It's your future. Your future from there is that. Not you get to go back to the, to the existing future to see what happened. None of those changes will have occurred. It'll now become your future, which spins off and branches everything out and totally screws everything up. Nothing is ever actually right. So you have to, you have to leave, you have to leave something exactly the way you found it by taking it from basically taking it from time in a way that it'll never be missed and then putting it back again. And this is the predominant theory going into the first half of the movie um where they actually have to come up with a to- basically a time machine. 
And it was for the first time I actually enjoyed watching a Time Machine movie. It's been a very long time since I've seen anything that was fun like Back to the Future um, that didn't ask you to question too much the science behind it, but also kind of obeyed given rules that people have come to um, expect and understand when they deal with time machines. Um, I So the plan becomes go back, get the stones, bring them to get the stones in such a way that they won't be missed. Get them to the present to fix what happened, undo Thanos' snap after five years, and then put the stones back. Um, the beauty of the plan is that if somehow it doesn't work, well, the, the universe was screwed anyway. So it's, <laughs> um, it's screwed no matter what. I think that is a very compelling way to do time travel. Um, I think, and they also use that to build into the final half of the movie. If we take the final half of the movie and divide that into quarters, it gives you the good quarter setup of them actually physically having to go chase down individual stones and or groups of stones, depending on what team you're on and the way that the uh, thing plays out. Uh, and, and then subsequently gives you the last quarter of the movie, which is the big battle, the big final battle. I think the best, I think what really makes the movie as compelling as possible, despite flaws and stupid things like the whole, uh, the whole way that Ant-Man comes back, is that for the first time in these, um, ensemble movies, and quite frankly, to a, to a degree that, um, maybe wasn't as well done as it could have been in their individual franchises. The team finally got some plot, uh, some plot time. They got some character development. They got some good writing in. They got to actually do and say things without having to fight all the freaking time. And it's something that I think has been a fair criticism of the Avenger films. And again, I'm not say what you will about Iron Man series, Thor series, Ant-Man series, etc. One of the hardest things to do is to keep that development growing when the Avengers come together. You can I mean, it's always been about the banter, it's always been about, you know, give them a little something to argue about because remember, they're not all happy honky dory all the time, but then let's just get to the fighting. And then if somehow the set piece allows for a little bit of maybe a tiny, tiny bit of character development or a little dialogue, then great. But usually even that just fell to exposition, move into the next action piece. Here, they literally give you all the time that I think was reasonably needed to really get the processing done from what happened in Infinity War. And I thought it was great. The only issue I had is, is with that is that I think they probably used four minutes. Just four minutes. Just give me four minutes of that first half of the movie and plug it into the lap, into that last 25%. Well, what do you want to do with four minutes, Matt? You know what I want to do with four minutes? I want to give Bucky a chance to say goodbye. 
I want to give Hope a reason to actually look like the badass that she is. I want to take 30 more seconds. And if you're gonna, and, and I don't want some kind of, uh, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be placated, right? I don't want to be pacified. Um, or patronized by a 45 second all girl fight scene. Um, I, you know, that kind of irritated me because I felt like it was pandering, not because I felt like it was genuine. If it had been genuine, I would have been all for it. I personally felt like it was pandering. So give them another 35, 40 seconds. Give them a full minute and a half to really showcase how well they could have been fighting together all this whole time. Give Bucky a bigger uh, chance. Give a couple of these minor characters that literally only have like two lines. Just take four more minutes. Give them some lines so that you can actually feel like they're not being shoehorned in. Just so you can say the character was there to end this series. And that's it. I'm 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 rambling on way too long. I know Tim's got a lot he wants to say. It's a three hour movie. It's a it's a three hour review. I don't know what to tell you. Um <laughs> but not really. So at the end of the day, there are some flaws. There are some true flaws to the movie, uh, but I really think that they brought it all together well and they did a hell of a lot right. So I give it a four and a half out of five. Absolutely worth seeing, absolutely a way to send it off. Um and so long to the to the people who died, you know, Black Widow, Iron Man, and Captain America. Thor was kind of weird because I thought he was done too. Of course, if you really need some more Black Widow action, she gets her own series on Disney Plus. So Granted, it's a prequel series. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how what, what they go from here. But yeah, four and a half out of five. So what do you got there, Tim? Well, you know, I was going to give the movie a 4 out of 5, but then after hearing your comments, I bumped it down to a 3.5 out of 5 because you brought... Uh, many things came to mind that I forgot. And one of those things revolved around Tony's death and how Peter Parker's relationship with Tony completely overshadowed Pepper Potts' relationship with Tony Stark. And I thought that was a horrible diversion from the core storyline. I mean, did you feel that at all? I actually was offended that, uh, again, I, I'm not offended because, because you know, woman superhero. I am offended because I felt like it was purposefully pandering. Um, when Pepper shows up in her Iron Woman outfit, when her, in her Iron Woman suit, that... That irritated me greatly. Um, I do not feel that the Pepper Potts um, thing was overshadowed. I think they'd had they'd already had three movies to take care of the Pepper Potts scenario. Okay, um, and so that that was kind of done at this point. We already knew they were okay. We already knew that was how it was going to work out. Um, you have to remember that between. Infinity, you know, after Infinity War, um, Stark kind of looked at Peter like his kid. He saw it. He didn't see him as a protege. He saw him as the son he didn't think he was ever going to have. And then he lost him. And it, and in, in his mind, it was all his fault. In, in Tony's mind, it was all Tony's fault. And, his daughter, through uh, through Pepper, 
was kind of like his, what he felt was his redemption arc. And until he gets to see Peter again. And Peter reminded him of why he was, of why he did everything he did, including have his daughter with Pepper. Right. So I, so I did not mind that at all. Although I will say that Peter, um, the, I, I did not, you know, I, I was moved. I was touched at all the people dying and all the sadness and whatever. But the one that actually legit got a tear that legit got a tear out of me was Peter's friend when he shows back up at school and they see each other for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the look on that guy's face was like, Oh my God. It was like the weight of the five years, the, the entire weight of the everything of that five years was in that kid's face. And I was just like, Oh, and that one got me, you know? So I hope he becomes a great actor. I don't know. I can't remember that poor kid's name, but man, that guy was, that, that just, Everything was in that look, and it was it was awesome. So, anyways, I'm sorry, you, but you're but you're on about the relationship with Pepper and. I think I missed Dolby. some of that stuff because I I had to sit in the very first row of the Dolby Theater. Oof! First row in the middle, so I didn't have going into this. I was in the best seating arrangement, so I, I apologize, Matt. Before you go, there's one more question I had. I, in fact, enjoyed a lot of the cameos in the film because I felt like they had a reason to be there. Their yes. being in the film was, was justified, uh, especially sure. that ending funeral shot with Hank Pym. The kid from Iron Man 3 that nobody remembered. Oh, I forgot that was even him. Yeah, he was there kind of at the in the back, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, he just standing there by himself. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everybody was there, and I thought, I mean, it, it made sense, you know, so it was kind of a nice remembrance of, oh, hey, we have all these characters to look forward to, because I have a feeling Hank Pym, along with Professor Hulk, are going to be like the next Tony Stark inventor characters. They they had a reason to be there. However, there was one character in the film that I just felt was shoved in, and that was, unfortunately, Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel really had no reason to be in the story. She felt like she was shoved in just as her MCU movie felt like it was shoved into the catalog of films here a few months, a couple months ago. You know, she's just kind of there. They had to have their deus ex machina, sir. Without the deus ex machina, what are you going to do? And Captain Marvel has always been kind of like the Superman of the Marvel Universe. And I'm not saying that it makes sense in the story. I'm just saying how she was represented in the film is what I don't, what I didn't like. Like, she was just kind of there. Like, there was a big buildup, like, ooh, Captain Marvel. And I get it. The story isn't about her, but her reasoning for her not being around for most of the movie is just a little silly. And... The movie didn't really do anything for her character. I didn't like her anymore. She didn't come off as a better character, in my opinion. And I'm somebody who, I I mean, I enjoyed Captain Marvel, but I didn't like her character. And this film didn't do anything for me. And it felt like a few moments with her would have been nice to establish something to make us care about her or to continue to care about her and to look forward to her being a part of the MCU opposed to, Oh, Hey, you know, she was in this movie that just came out. Now she's in this film. Now she's gone. And now she's going to show up in the last 15 minutes or so. And 
even when she's in the film, she just has this cockiness to her that isn't as charming as Tony Scott, Tony Scott, <laughs> Tony Stark's cockiness. I'm not saying that cockiness is charming, but there are certain people that can get away with it. Tony Stark was one of them. That's really the kind of the extent of my criticisms for the movie. It's a good film, but it's not as satisfying nor organically played out as I was expecting, especially Infinity War coming right before this one. That was very satisfying, and it played out incredibly organically. Everything was smooth, cohesive, and because of the ending of Infinity War, I had no clue which direction this film Endgame would take. The weight established in Infinity War, unfortunately, isn't there in Endgame. Thanos is replaced by earlier, but a much different Thanos. And Thor is fat. <laughs> the dramatic stakes are dampened because of these, I mean, not only because of these two aspects of this film, but these two aspects of the film lend to the dramatic stakes not being that dramatic. Fat Thor. Okay, it's funny, but every time Fat Thor was on screen, it got a laugh. A lot of those laughs were intentional by the filmmakers, but a lot of them were not. The movie didn't do a good job justifying that decision, and it didn't do a good job allowing the audience to become comfortable with that decision. And I personally might have preferred a less chaotic ending to Endgame. Maybe with Thanos being killed off at the start of the film, and Thanos just stays gone. Like, there's no previous Thanos. I think that would have been interesting. And the film would have focused on the surviving Avengers setting out to reset the snap. Because for the entire film, we know. Especially when Thanos comes back, like, there's going to be another battle. Boy, there is another battle. And it's chaotic, it's blue screen heavy, and it just completely undoes what I thought Infinity War did beautifully. And I understand Infinity War is a different movie, but there were filmmaking styles established in Infinity War that I wish carried over through Endgame. We didn't need to have a big bombastic chaotic ending, and it didn't need to have to be small. It could have been smaller, but more intricate. I'm going back up to a four out of five. It's a good film. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. As I mentioned, I was sitting in the front row, and I may have missed out on some of the more dramatic beats, uh, so I'm looking forward to going back and sitting in a better spot. But I'm going to stick with four out of five. And there you go. Fair enough. Oh, and yes, I did have, uh, I, I went and saw it in Dolby as well. Uh, I am enjoying, I'm actually enjoying Dolby right now more than IMAX. I think because they're really trying to push it. So it's really got good screen, really good projector, great sound. So I'm enjoying Dolby more than IMAX right now. And I sat in the very back row in the dead center. So I, yeah, I, I'm going to say that that definitely would have a an impact. I will, however, say that I knew that they were going to use the stones, and th and it was really irritating me that they're like, no, 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 the, they're not going to use the stones because everybody's like, all you got to do is just use the time gem and the reality gem, and you know, I'm sure you can you know undo what's been done. And the, all these reports, no, 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 they're not going to use the stones. They're not going to use the stones. And, I'm, and then what? They use the stones. So 
I mean, I knew how they were going to do it. I just, it was just kind of irritating because that, that was a little bit of red herring, I thought, on, on their part, but not enough to change my rating. Um, all right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies, folks. And we hope that you enjoy, uh, the kickstart to our, um, Ray Harryhausen series. We think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, and I guess without further ado, we are now down to the spiel. Are we not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cash. You can follow me at SLS on Twitter at Twit12345. You can watch Tumble Work on Twitter at Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. As well as track us down on Twitter if you'd like to support the show. Please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out over there. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Robert Downey Jr., I can say this. Do I want to be a my son? Here's the finals, and we'll talk to you again. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.